Have you ever noticed when you travel to major cities that there's always some dude on a horse? I'll show you what I mean in a moment. I first heard this insight from Pastor Brian Zahn in a similar way that I want to share with you today, but since it had been drawn to my attention, I began to actually notice it for myself. Probably uh, the first time I was conscious of it is when Lindsay and I had an opportunity to travel to Europe. Uh, we landed in Barcelona, Spain, and we found ourselves severely jet-lagged, uh, but we wanted to uh, try to get caught up with the time zone as quickly as possible and take advantage of our time in the city as much as we could. So like moments after we dropped our bags, we found ourselves on a double-decker tour bus traveling the city. And I can remember distinctly when we came into the Barcelona town square, we came upon this dude on a horse in the form of a statue. Now, even though I noticed it, I remember not feeling that surprised by uh, this particular statue or this particular dude on a horse. I mean, I don't really know who he is, but I realized that this experience is not that unfamiliar or unexpected. Check out some of these other cities. Lisbon, Portugal, dude on a horse. Uh, Berlin, Germany, another dude on a horse. Uh, Rome, no surprise, a dude on a horse. In fact, I think there are lots of dudes on horses uh, in Rome. Um, check out this one I found as I was researching this a little bit more. This monstrosity is in Mongolia. Uh, it's a statue of the dude on a horse that was 12th century conqueror Genghis Khan. Now that is quite a dude on a horse. Um, bring it to this side of the Atlantic, Washington, a dude on a horse. And before we start sort of wagging our fingers at American conformity, a little closer to home, Toronto. Yes, in Toronto, there's a dude on a horse. Because it seems there's always a dude on a horse. That somehow in sort of our expectation of power and authority throughout the history of our world in the name of like freedom uh, or security or strength or justice, it's always seemed that we've needed a, a dude on a horse usually sword in hand and army in tow, conquering the world on our behalf, you know, in theory to make it a better place. Um, one dude on a horse who eventually becomes a statue at a time. But my question for us today is how has this expectation of power and authority affected our experience of and relationship with God? So as we start out this uh, Easter series, as we enter into the, the weeks of Easter together in this Unexpected God series, uh, we want to start today by looking at a story that, that may just shatter this expectation or paradigm that there's always some dude on a horse. And today we're actually going to look at the story most associated with this Sunday kind of in our church calendar, what is often referred to as Palm Sunday. So if you have access to a Bible, uh, you could open it up to Luke chapter 19, where we're going to dive into this story together, a story that is kind of known to have happened right around this time in these days leading up to the events of Easter. So you can read along if you have it in front of you, or I'll just read it for us as we take in this story together. I'm starting in Luke 19, verse 29, where it says, as Jesus approached Bethpage and Bethany, these were two villages just a couple miles outside of the capital city of Jerusalem. As Jesus approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, 
he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and they found it just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and then they put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, uh, this was a peak of a mountain just east of Jerusalem. And this peak would have been the moment where they could see the city as they, they began to descend toward it together. When they, he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And they shouted together, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this, uh, this story, this episode, um, it took place in, in Jesus's day, in the days leading up to what was called the Passover celebration. The Passover festival or celebration, it was an annual festival where the people of Israel would all come together, so to make a pilgrimage to their capital city of Jerusalem, to celebrate God's rescue of their slavery from Egypt thousands of years earlier. But by the time Jesus came around, what was a little bit ironic about the, the Passover celebration is that uh, the Jewish people now found themselves in a new and another form of slavery as they were uh, under the occupation and oppression of the Roman Empire. And during this Passover celebration, as hundreds of thousands of, of Israelites came to Jerusalem, it was also a time where the powers of Rome made sure they paid special attention to Jerusalem as well. It would have been right around this same time, these days leading up to the festival, that as Jesus uh, came to the east with his from the east with his fellow pilgrims, the Roman governor of the area, Pontius Pilate, he was coming from his outpost in the west in Caesarea. And you guessed it, mounted atop a war horse with an entire Roman regiment in tow with him as they came into the city, all as a show of force to remind the Israelites who was really in charge. And that as they celebrated, it was in their best interest to continue to cooperate and remain fully in, in line with the Roman Empire's rule. Now, we refer to the, the events in this, this story uh, as Palm Sunday. And that comes from uh, the Gospel of John's reference in this story to the pilgrims that were, were walking with Jesus, waving palm branches as they went. And this was a very significant symbol because there had been moments in Israel's history when their leaders or kings had conquered an enemy that they would celebrate by, by waving palm branches to celebrate their victory, their, the defeat that they had accomplished and celebrate their liberation together. It also says that they, they laid their cloaks down and along the road as, as Jesus traveled. Again, a, a symbol from Israel's history that at the coronation of some of their, their earlier kings, uh, they would lay down their cloaks as a sign of honor and submission. A person's cloak was extremely valuable to them, and to, to lay it down was a sign of, of respect and submission to the newly crowned king. 
But as we look at this story today, you might have noticed that there's one particular unexpected detail of a king who is apparently riding in to establish a new kingdom, especially in the face of a pre-existing occupying empire or an enemy. Because what we notice in this story is that Jesus' chosen mode of transportation doesn't actually have the horse-like characteristics and qualities that were generally needed if you're going to come into a city to overthrow an enemy. So what we see in the story is that Jesus was actually not some dude on a horse, but instead Jesus chose to ride a donkey's colt into the city. Now, why is this a significant detail? And what, what does this say to us in this story? Why does Jesus ride a donkey? Was it simply that he didn't have access to a horse, would have preferred that, but, but couldn't, couldn't find one? I mean, it seemed like Jesus actually had a unique way of being able to, to, to access the donkey's colt that they wanted to find. But was that the reason? Or was it not significant at all? Was Jesus just kind of tired at the end of a long journey and he didn't really feel like walking the rest of the way? So he said to his disciples, hey, get me a rental car or something like that. I mean, Jesus had walked for his entire life and his entire ministry. I don't think it was that he just couldn't hack it for the last couple miles. But I think the reason the cult, the donkey's cult, is so prominent in the story is it actually reveals to us that as, as Jesus sensed that his time was coming to really reveal who he, who he really and fully was and to inaugurate this, this new kind of kingdom in the world, he wanted to ride this donkey to show his disciples and the whole world that he was a king like they had never seen an unexpected king. And when you look actually at the, the whole arc of the scriptures, you see that this unexpected king had, had actually been imagined or prophesied earlier. In Israel's ancient prophecies, um, it was something that maybe just had been, had been missed or misunderstood or overlooked because 600 years earlier, a prophet named Zechariah had poetically prophesied about an unexpected king. In Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, we read this. He wrote, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. He's talking to all the people of Israel. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. And listen to this, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. On behalf of this king, he imagined, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. This king will proclaim peace to the nations, to all the nations. He will, his rule will extend from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. You see, Zechariah imagined a different kind of king. Zechariah imagined an unexpected king. Um, Zechariah imagined a king that, that wouldn't charge in with conquering force on a war horse, but would trot slowly on a humble donkey as a sign of his surrender and sacrifice. Um, and this is not what we would expect of a king. Um, kings uh, ride war horses. Kings become kings by conquering other kingdoms. Kings overthrow their enemies by attacking with their army. And then kings are coronated with crowns and thorns. 
but not Jesus. As Jesus was uh, preparing to reveal the kind of kingdom he was coming to bring, he deliberately and uh, subversively sought out a donkey's colt to show that he was a different kind of king. Jesus wanted to trade the war horse for a donkey. Um, Jesus wanted to trade an army for humble apprentices and disciples. And just days later, Jesus would be crowned, not with a crown, but with thorns, and coronated not on a throne, but on a cross. Showing us that Jesus is a king who would uh, rather die for his enemies than kill them, and whose kingdom comes not through conquering force, but through co-suffering, sacrificial love. This is the king that we see through this Palm Sunday story, the king we see in Jesus, an unexpected king that changes our paradigm of authority and power and what the kings of the world can look like. And I think this is good news for us this Easter when it comes to our expectation of and relationship with God. Because what the, the good news of Jesus tells us and what the New Testament shows us is that um, everything we see in Jesus is actually everything we can expect of God. Following Jesus' resurrection, which we're going to celebrate together in a week, is that sort of cemented the faith in his first followers that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God that he claimed to be. The Apostle Paul ended up writing this in Colossians chapter 1. He said, Christ Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That in the person of Jesus and everything Jesus has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, even the riding of a donkey, in Jesus we can see the perfect reflection and image of who God is. That what we can expect from God is everything that we see in Jesus. That if Jesus is a king um, who doesn't bring in his kingdom, doesn't come into the world with conquering force. Neither is God one who comes into our lives through conquering force. I think this is unexpected. That if we wouldn't expect sort of the powerful rulers and kings of the world to come this way, how much less would we expect the all-powerful sovereign God of the universe to come this way? But this is what we see in Jesus, and this is what we can expect of God in the most unexpected way. So my question for you this morning is, what has been your expectation of God? You know, in a world where it seems there's always some dude on a horse, and the way power is exerted is through sort of coercion and control and conquering force, how have some of these pictures actually affected your image of God, maybe in a way that has had you resist God's entry into your own life. You know, maybe um, you've thought about God kind of like a controlling parent, you know, who firmly sets the boundaries and the rules and is just kind of watching and ready to, to punish if you step out of line. Or maybe you've kind of assumed God is a little bit like a coercive boss and has just laid out, you know, such a, a heavy uh, task load or burden of duty and responsibility. And you try your best to kind of live up to it with just a faint hope of a future reward, but also a dreadful consequence if you fail to succeed. Maybe you've 
thought that God is like a manipulative politician, egocentric, attention-seeking, power-hungry, you know, just trying to arrange the world uh, for his best interest rather the interests of his people. Or maybe at worst, like the kingdoms of this world, you've assumed God uh, wields his power like a vengeful dictator, you know, trying to conquer or take back the world for himself, you know, wiping out his enemies along the way. And the good news of what we see in Jesus is that God is none of those things. That God actually breaks all paradigms and all expectations as the God who comes uh, not through force, but through humility, gentleness, love, and peace to enter our world and our lives humbly. And this is the God that we can open up to and we can embrace together at Easter. This is the unexpected God that wants to change our lives today. And if this is the God that we can uh, embrace together because of the unexpected king that we see in Jesus, uh, this is also the God that we are invited to emulate together in our faith. That if Jesus is the unexpected king who comes riding in humbly on a donkey, we are invited to be subjects that em emulate his humility and his sacrifice and his service as well. I wonder how unexpectedly different our lives would be if we took on that posture in our, in our lives and in our faith. You know, how would our relationships look unexpectedly different, whether it's in friendship or in families or, or maybe in marriages, if rather than always trying to have to sort of fight for our way, we just had this default operating setting in the way of Jesus to surrender our way for the sake of the other? Or how would our parenting look unexpectedly different or, or our coaching or our teaching, our, our investing in the next generation? If we weren't always trying to control, you know, our kids or the next generation, but rather we were looking to, to serve um, and nurture and encourage and empower and unleash the next generation. How would our workplaces look unexpectedly different if we weren't uh, always striving for the promotion ourselves, but we were looking around to see who we could encourage the promotion of, maybe even into positions or roles that we could may otherwise have? And ultimately, how would um, the church and those who identify as followers of Jesus look unexpectedly different if we didn't believe our job was to try to prove that we're right or force our faith on others or feel like we needed to be sort of in power and control if the world's going to be the way it needs to be. And instead, we embrace the unexpected way of Jesus to lay down our lives in service of others, taking the most lowly place in his unexpected kingdom. We live in a world where we have come to expect that there is just always some dude on a horse. Um, but the good news today is that the God of the universe chose to ride a donkey. <laughs> That's what we can embrace this Palm Sunday. It's made me think as I was reflecting on this th this week that um, maybe Palm Sunday would have been more aptly named Donkey Sunday. Um, that we would have helped us get the point, but I could see how it doesn't have quite the same ring in the church calendar, or there may have been some other synonyms that maybe be would have become associated with it, but I want us to know that that's the point. That in an unexpected way, the God of the universe through Jesus took the lowliest place, 
demonstrated as he went into the events of Easter that would change the world forever, that he was coming to bring a different kind of kingdom, an unexpected kingdom that comes through service and sacrifice. That's the God that we can open up to, to embrace together this Easter. That's the God and the King that is inviting us to emulate his way and his life into the world. So may we be people and followers of Jesus who follow the lead of that unexpected King, not as a King who came as some dude on a war horse, but as a humble and loving, sacrificial servant riding on a donkey. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and all that you have done. And we thank you for the ways you break into our lives and our world in such unexpected ways, revealing a God who is probably so unexpected that we, we still just want to keep learning how to, how to tap into understanding his love for us. May we embrace who you are and what you've done more fully, even today, this week, and in this Easter season. And may we be compelled to em emulate you not being people who live our faith by force, but who participate with you in living our faith through sacrificial love. Thank you that that's what you've done for us, and we look forward to continuing to celebrate this together this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.